0: Welcome to Max Volume, where we deliver loud takes and soothing decibels. I am your host, Maxwell Lewis Sanders, and this is episode 75. For those new listeners out there, Max Volume is a podcast that worships at the altar of pop culture, a place where the silly and inane are of the utmost importance. It's a pod where we discuss heavy topics like Rob Lowe's saxophone skills, why the Mighty Ducks 2 rules, and how easily Michelle Rodriguez could beat me up. Spoiler alert, it would be very easy. No quote too minor, no side plot too small, there's a pod for the TV geeks and movie freaks, so welcome all weary travelers. Your boredom ends here. Before we delve into the topic at hand, let's start with five minutes of Seinfeld-level daily observation. Watched St. Elmo's Fire at 3 a.m. last night. What a delightful yuppie fest of first world problems. I loved every second of it, even though I hated every single main character. There's just these vapid, self-involved, uh, just you know, rich kids out of college just bumping through life and being selfish. And if you're ever going to tell the the movie of, like, the friends after college, give them absurd million-dollar apartments and the coolest Jeep Wrangler I've ever seen, like, in this movie. Like, I don't need to see the sad one-bedroom basement apartment where they're eating cup of noodles. Make it glamorous. It's a movie. I'm not paying for realism. Like, give me Demi Moore wearing way too much fur and having a full wall art installation of Billy Idol's face complete with neon lighting. Looks like it costs, like, $50,000 just for that. And Judd Nelson has this... Uh, like airplane hangar loft apartment that looks like it was cost like $8,000 a month. It's like, how do you afford that out of college? But that's not the point. And Schumacher knew that Joel Schumacher directing this knew we wanted to see glitz and glam. And I love that the movie's obstacles are so minor yet so blown out of proportion to like life threatening kind of status. Like it's just a car wreck of a movie of like self involvement and, you know, just being vapid. And I just I just adored it. Like, I mean, it's it was unapologetically like here's seven spoiled kids out of college, kind of bump through life and you know kind of getting falling flat on their face, but for like very minor reasons. Also, everyone in it is young and beautiful and intelligent, so why not just forget reality for a couple hours and walk around in Joel Schumacher's glitzy unrealistic world? Loved it. We'll watch it again. Rob Lowe's hair, I want it. I want it on my head someday. You know, if there's ever like nanotech where you can kind of create a body part from nothing like i want roblo's hair and a saxophone this look as you can tell i'm on a huge 80s binge right now so tonight i'm either gonna watch purple rain or evil dead no clue which way i'm leaning so stay tuned oh stay tuned actually is another awesome 80s movie i need to consume again it it's satan tricking suburbanites into selling their souls for a tv satellite package and they get like sucked into the tv so that every time you change a station it's like they're in like the worst version of a twilight zone where they're stuck in the tv it's the best i forget who's in it i think it's jeffrey jones is satan and the guy from three's company is the main dad i can't remember it anyways so it's david fincher week on bill simmons website and podcast network and you know religious site for me because i worship at the altar of, of bill simmons outside of pop culture but he is like a pop culture disciple he's like moses I better better not get too too into religious stuff because that's weird. But I'm giddy about this David Fincher week. I mean, Fincher is so goddamn weird and dark and obsessive and has such a unique career and monster hit movies. He's probably the most distinctive active director of my lifetime. Like he started in music videos and did a ton of memorable ones that you probably didn't know he did. He did Paul Abdul's Straight Up, which blew my tiny adolescent mind for a variety of reasons. He did Vogue by Madonna. He did. He's done everything from Jay Z and Justin Timberlake, Timberlake to the Rolling Stones. Like he's done it all. And I never knew he was a commercial god too. Like he made tons of memorable Nike and Gap ads that you would know. Sadly, he didn't make the basketball squeak, stomp, rip uh, commercial, which is my all-time favorite. But like, I knew all the commercials when I looked them up. Like I was like, oh my god. So he has like over 200 credits to his name when you add all the music videos and all the uh, all the commercials, which is rare for, you know, a top-level director. And he has created two of the most memorable streaming television shows of the past half decade in House of Cards and Mindhunter. And remember, House of Cards was the first unique streaming service uh, original IP that came out. So, like, he kind of started the streaming revolution on television. So that can't be understated either. And then there are the movies. And the best way to describe them is a Fincher quote that he gave in a Playboy article where he said, People are perverts. That's pretty much been the basis of my career. That's perfect summation. Like, thank you, David Fincher, for summing it up and making it easy. He has this really cynical view of humanity, and his central characters are almost always broken and bitter and severely hurt by the world. And it's so interesting to watch a director who seems to revile his creations, because uh, like most popular directors usually show undying affection and affinity for their uh, you know for their main stars, and Fincher is. The opposite. He's the kid with a magnifying glass, just burning ants because his older brother beats him up. And this is the this uh, burning of the ants is like the expression of that hurt, like what he can do to control it. The clearest example, which I can't believe actually happened. It sounds bizarre. I, I can't believe this story sounds so wrong. It sounds so made up, but it actually occurred. Like Gone Girl, the movie where Fincher basically made the movie about Ben Affleck and his tortured relationship with the media and fame. And this seemingly was unbeknownst to Ben Affleck. And he just spends two hours beating the hell out of, like, a broken guy. And it's all about Ben Affleck. He has serious disdain and hate for Ben Affleck. And I don't think Ben Affleck realized it wasn't in the movie. It was really about him. It's incredible. Like, Fincher is so strange, gross, and relatable. He feels like he's hiding out in the darkest corner of your mind and exposing universal thoughts we all have. But, you know, you don't want to say. You're like, how do you know I felt that? It's like, but he's going to say it again. Good, good, good. It's like this, he has this kind of vibe of like sad boy loneliness, which I mean, you can see mo- like most prevalent in uh, his portrayal of Mark Zuckerberg, like fueling this, uh, like Mark Zuckerberg and his creation of this unrelenting social media empire. He really kind of shines a negative light on him, Or like the te- detectives in Seven being mentally destroyed by a society of sickos and masochists. Or there's torture chambers and false accusations and the girl with the dragon tattoo. There's the loss of reality of a douchey rich guy in the game. And then there's my favorite and most complicated Fincher film, the satirical, confusing kind of study of toxic masculinity that is 1999's Fight Club. Like, what a complicated movie to go back on and revisit. Because when I first saw this movie, it blew my goddamn socks clean off. They were gone. I was looking. I couldn't even find them in the dryer. I couldn't find one of them. They were just, they were, like, in Oklahoma, and, like, someone, like, sent me an email like, yo, your socks are in Oklahoma. I'm like, I know, I don't know why they're there. They, Fincher blew them off and they went, went to Oklahoma, apparently. I think Tulsa, Tulsa, Oklahoma. But anyways, when I first saw this movie, I was 14 and sockless, obviously. And I was pretty socially inept. And I was, you know, just a white dude from an upper middle class family. So of course, Brad Pitt screaming about anarchy, shirtless, while scoffing at absurd social norms was like catnip for my generation. Like, we didn't have anything to rebel against. We had cushy lives, fast tracked for good jobs, and dull existences, and it seemed to be the norm. And here you have this chiseled man god smiling at you and spewing about how you've been tricked into ignoring our base survival hunter gatherer DNA. Like, of course, this is gonna be an adrenaline shot to my psyche. So, it's a complicated process to detangle how truly fired up you got when Brad Pitt and Fincher amped the testosterone meter to like 17 while simultaneously making a movie that on further examination was clearly a satire of those anarchist, anti-establishment man-child instincts we all have rattling around in our bones. So it's really difficult to read into the subtext when the most attractive man on the planet is beating another guy senseless in a basement, while droves of other frustrated, generationally neutered men are cheering him on like he's a goddamn gladiator in the Roman Colosseum. It's difficult. Like, you know, it's like when you see a magic trick you want to try to decipher the trick but your brain wants to be deceived and you're like you're trying to figure it out but your brain's like come on just enjoy this. So it's like yeah Brad Pitt is basically a magic trick. It's like I just want to enjoy him on screen. So some of it is definitely the source material. This is based on a book by Chuck Palahniuk who's probably the most intensely weird and graphic novelist of the past 30 years. He's one of those authors who takes two pages to instruct you on the correct way to get blood stains out of shag carpeting. And I've I've read, like, biographies on him. He actually, like, researches all the stuff. I think there was steroid use in one of his books, and he went on steroids for six months. He's one of those people who, it's almost like method acting. He gets into everything that uh, he puts into the book. And I once read his book, Lullaby, and there's an image so grotesque near the end of the story, I literally threw the book across the room and just stared into oblivion for a solid 15 minutes. And that book is about sudden infant death syndrome. I mean, just, uh, I mean, that's not a light topic. I mean, he's just a weirdo. And he writes kind of anti-hero loner porn meant for bored dudes who wanted to find meaning in the mundanity of life, of daily life. And if you want his best stuff, Fight Club or Survivor are his peak. Survivor is like all about a cult and fame and all. And I, I think I've read that one 30 or 40 times in my 20s. But that's the thing about his choice of topics and thematic choices. Like they're all of a, time and place, distinctly tied with rebellion and counterculture of youth. Like I said, I read this book 30, 40 times, but it was in my 20s. So it's like, I, you know, I loved Garden State when I was 18 years old. And now I'm a little embarrassed. I liked Charlie Coffin movies in my mid 20s. And now I'm like, that was stupid. (laughs) So you look back on your obsessions with these books or this movie and the passion and admiration fade with kind of added wisdom and experience, or maybe, you know, the testosterone is dialed down a little bit. I'm a little less fire and brimstone and more like Let's connect with our fellow man or something i don't know and not to say that doesn't not to say this movie doesn't rule like this movie rules hard and fincher is a master technician he's known for doing like 100 takes of a scene to put the actors in a panic, panic mental mental state to get the performance he wants out of the vessel for his art you know he's a, he's kind of like kubrick like that or like He cares if someone's in the background is walking too fast. He obsessively pours over every inch of the screen and fight club has a lot of scenery to chew over. So I can't imagine how long this took or how many takes it he had to do. There was over 400 locations, 400 for this movie. And it's greatly appreciated. Like everything from the Ikea magazine writing, popping up over the narrator's apartment to back alleys of convenience stores to cramped airplane cabins, to the the dilapidated house on paper street, Every scene throughout the movie has a unique feel that vibrates at a specific frequency on the screen. Like Fight Club has this weird tone of sardonic, sardonic, deadpan humor, which is refreshing in a Fincher movie as his general themes are so bleak. He got better about humor later in life. Like if you notice seven, nothing, nothing in seven is funny. Alien three, nothing's really funny. By the time he's at the, like the social network, and Gone Girl, he, he can splice in humor. Like, I think Fight Club was kind of the beginning of that, which is definitely, definitely needed when you're <laughs> kind of so bleak and dreary like he is. And Edward Norton, as the monotoned, unreliable narrator, is the perfect use of his skill set. It makes me kind of sad Edward Norton didn't become our generation's Robert De Niro. Like, by 1999, when this movie came out, uh, Norton had already rattled off Primal Fear, which one of the, was one of the best, like, is he crazy courtroom dramas ever. American History X, which is probably the best racially influenced movie of the '90s, and Rounders, which is just about as much fun as you can have at a popcorn movie about poker. Like he was versatile, he was compelling. You could root for him just as easily as you as you could curse his name. And then he topped it off with this weirdo performance as a psychotic split personality every man who accidentally starts a global movement of rebellion. I mean, it makes me wonder what could have been. Like, what would have? What was? Edward Norton's Neil McCulley in heat role in his 40s. Like, what do we miss out on? It just bums me out a bit because he's freakishly good in this bizarre, uncomfortably dark movie. And this movie had all the staples of a classic Fincher movie, like grotesque, well-shot violence from underground bare-knuckle boxing fights to spiritual-based self-mutilation with Tyler's kiss and, like, burning his hand to pulling out your own teeth and swallowing a pint of your own blood. And normally this time of violence kind of makes me squirm. Like, I'm not a... I'm not a big horror guy in general. I just don't I don't like being scared that much. But I mean, I like a good thriller or weird stuff. And Fincher's like perfect at polishing up this gross stuff that ties in with the general themes of the movie so it makes it more palatable. And Tyler Durden's ideas about anarchy and counterculture aren't particularly profound actually in this movie. And they're not really revolutionary when you look at them in a vacuum. Like all he's saying is basically like, Cut the financial strings that the elite put on the world. and your dependence on commercialism and material desire. Let go of modern band-aid solutions for life and get back to the beautiful brutality of survival instincts. Like, there's probably 8 billion manifestos like this circulating around the internet, but none of them have Brad Pitt's voiceover while thumping electronic bass lines are, like, just thudding through an entire room of zealot fire followers cheering after each speech. Like, the movie's trying to illustrate that in a world where we become polite to the point of weakness... Any voice that spews about confidence and baser instinct appeal with charm and fervor can spark a connection in a generation that doesn't really have a concrete belief system. I was just as susceptible as the next guy when it comes to this kind of rhetoric. Like, look at the popularity of movies like The Dark Knight, No Country for Old Men, Silence of the Lambs, Goodfellas, Pulp Fiction, The Boondock Saints. Like, what do they all have in common? It's confident psychopaths with a flair of conveying their steadfast viewpoints with an unwavering tone. So I'm not really sure if I like what Tyler Durden is saying, or I'm just fired up that he has such bravado about a radically different viewpoint. It's a weird feeling. Like my brain and heart are in an arm wrestling match and I'm unsure of who who to root for. And I mean, you think about it and all, I mean, it's just confidence. I mean, I guess that's the best rule of life. It's like, say something, say it with confidence. It's like, elephants are pink and you're like, no, they're not. It's like, yeah, no, they are. And like, someone's going to go on their phone and be like, are elephants pink? It's like, no, they're not. But I said it with confidence. So you're, you're going you're gonna to believe me for a second. It's crazy. It's a weird world. And then there's the beauty of the David Fincher movies in general. Like, they leave you with important questions rather than oversimplified answers. Like, you leave the theater loving Tyler Durden, but nauseated by the fact that when you try to impact... You're kind of nauseated by the fact of it's gross. The, the why of why you like him is not very kind of appealing to the morality in you. And... I just realized I never broke down the plot of this movie in this, in this podcast. But honestly, if you clicked on a Fight Club podcast and haven't seen the movie, I'm not particularly sure what you're trying to get out of this. It's, and I'm, I'm not going to lie, it's fun kind of not holding your audience's hand once in a while and be like, this is the plot of the movie. You know, this is how much it made. And I get why David Lynch and Kubrick and Nolan and Aaron Strauss, Aronofsky just go for it sometimes. And I'm not comparing myself to them, although I am, because, you know, vanity and self-worth, confidence. Yeah, basically, I'm in, that, I'm in that group. It's Mount Rushmore, and my head's getting put on next, because I'm talking about movies without explaining the plot beforehand. That's as revolutionary as The Shining. And all these guys just have no consideration for the audience. They're just like, I'm going to make my art. So you're, I'm going to make my art. And my art is podcasting, talking about other people's art, because I can't make my own art. So there. And the, act, like, the actual scene-by-scene analysis has been done to death. Like, it's much more fun to do a 10,000 feet high vantage point of what Fincher was trying to illustrate about the power of confidence and toxic masculinity. Oh, I guess, I mean, and Helen bon- Bonham Carter is just perfect in this movie. She's basically death in human form, and I love her so much while actually like, being absolutely terrified of her as a character. I know that has nothing to do with what I've been talking about, but, I mean, I can't not mention her. And also the way she smokes, it's like the coolest thing I've ever seen. Like I can't smoke cigarettes or I don't smoke cigarettes. And the way she smokes makes me want to smoke cigarettes, even though I can't or won't because it's bad for you, but it looks so cool. Like, and that's Fincher too. You know, Fincher knows how to make everything look cool. And he creates these kind of beautiful twisted canvases with films like this. And I'm so glad he made it. And We can break it down when all it's layers 21 years later. And I'm still not completely sure for what he was going for. Cause you know, I, I don't think I, Sound, you know, completely sure that do I like it? Was I being tricked into liking it? Did I like the exterior layer when I delve into the other layers? Do I like what it says about me? And I guess that goes against the confidence thing. So it's like that's why I want to watch Tyler Durden be confident, shirtless, and punching, and speaking and rhetoric, and you know, setting the world on fire because I'm here doubting whether I liked the movie 21 years later. So that's me. That's Fight Club, and this is over. Later.